Warblers and cranes fly south for the colder months, but plenty of birds stick it out for winter in Wisconsin. Not only are birds active in the winter, they can be much easier to spot, too, with fewer people and the absence of leaves on the trees. But winter birding does come with a few challenges. Welcome to Route 51. I'm Shireen Seward. Today, we explore the world of winter birds in Wisconsin with advice on how to identify them, feed them, and help promote their survival. Steve Bechkel is a professional ornithologist. He's an educator and Emmy award-winning journalist with more than 50 years of experience in birding. Steve, welcome back to Route 51. Thanks, Shereen. Jeanette Kelly is a wildlife biologist, ornithologist, and educator at Beaver Creek Reserve. She spent more than 12 years as a citizen science and education director. Jeanette, welcome back to you as well. Thanks, Shereen. Pleasure to be here. Well, let's start by talking about you and finding out more about your background and your your love of this work. Uh, Jeanette, how about you first? What's your background? Sure. So I grew up loving nature. I had parents that took us kids outside. My parents were both educators. So we spent our summers roaming around the country looking for different plants and animals and birds. My dad picked up all kinds of creatures and stuck them in my hand from a very early age. I, as I grew up, I always knew I loved nature and wanted to work with animals, but I will say I never intended to work with birds. I never thought I would do that. And the very first job I had as a wildlife biologist, when I was in college, I went away for the summer and ended up in Maryland at Patuxent Wildlife Research Center. And someone stuck an American kestrel in my hand, our country's smallest falcon. And from that moment, I fell in love and I've worked with birds ever since. So for 25, well, gosh, no more than that now, 30 some years, I have been working with birds in all sorts of different manners. And kestrels, American kestrels still remain my favorite bird to this day. And I still work with them to this day. And throughout all the years, I've worked with various types of raptors. Uh, They are still my passion. And I work, I've worked with songbirds and waterfowl and cranes and herons and kind of everything in between. And I have found a great way here at Beaver Creek Reserve to work with animals, um, work work with them with uh, through science and research, but also by educating the public and getting them to fall in love with the animals in the same way that I do. Wonderful. Steve, tell us about you. How did you get into this? What's your education and what do you love about this so much? I'm a country boy from Racine County, uh, Caledonia, Wisconsin, which is cabbage country near Franksville. I was in seventh grade asked a question by my teacher, what do you want want to be when you grow up? And my answer was, well, I can't make up my mind. I either want to be a scientist or an artist. And so it ended up I became a journalist, which really is both. You're, You're investigating and you're creating a product that's very, very visual. But I started bird watching in 1969 because I was curious. I was a bug collector first, and, and I collected all kinds of things, pine cones and rocks. But I was mowing my lawn, and I asked my dad what this bird was in the yard. It was kind of a bronzy, greenish black with a brown head. And he said, oh, I don't know, some kind of blackbird. And it just wasn't a good enough answer for me. And so I walked five miles to the store in, in that area. And I got a bird guide, the uh, one printed in Racine, Wisconsin, the golden guide. And I found out it was a brown-headed cowbird. And and every bird I saw after that, I had to know what it was. You know, you couldn't just stop. It was like, well, what's that? And so anyways, I've been been a bird watcher since that time, since I was 11. And 
I actually uh, uh, became a journalist and have worked at that for 38 years now. But in the meantime, I never gave up my love for birds and, uh, and my curiosity for birds. So I've traveled all 50 states, Puerto Rico, uh, worked in the Galapagos, been to Africa looking for birds. So wow. Easy to very interesting lives, both of you. Thanks for sharing that with us. I have to say this winter has been unique. I mean, we don't have as much snow. We haven't had the sub-zero temperatures we usually see. I'm curious how that has affected the winter bird population here. How are things different today compared to a typical year in Wisconsin? Jeanette, how about you? Well, we actually were just talking about it this weekend. We had the Bald Eagle Nest Watch training this weekend. We partner with the Southwestern uh, Wisconsin Bird Alliance, formerly Madison Audubon, in monitoring bald eagle nests throughout the state. And this question just came up because we've been talking about with this warmer weather and this lack of snow and lack of freezing temperatures we've had this winter, is this going to pose well for birds overall or not for birds overall? And I actually have a volunteer that volunteers here at Beaver Creek that saw a bluebird uh, last week and mm. had it confirmed by um, her husband. And so what is this going to do for populations coming um, coming forward. And I think for some of the larger species, like maybe the eagles, it might bode well for them if water's open. Uh, I, I actually just had a um, a colleague text me and her, her coworker was on the Mississippi today and he counted um, uh, almost 70 bald eagles today on the river. So with open water and lots of fish, they might have bumper nests this year. We might see three uh, eaglets in those nests this year. But if those bluebirds are starting to come back now in February, uh, if the warblers start coming back early and then we have a hard freeze or a big dump of snow in April, um, and if temperatures stay that way for a long time or in March, that might not do very well for those populations. Yeah, I guess that was really my next question. If birds come back earlier than usual, and then we get this, you know, this late season sub-zero freeze, lots and lots of snow. Um, could that be very dangerous to birds? Do they get, you know, what happens then? A short term, you know, if we get a bunch of snow and then it melts right away or freeze one night and then it warms up, that's, you know, animals are tough. Right. They can handle a lot. They're going to be fine. But I, I mean, it's only February, Shireen. It is early February. Yeah. We have essentially three months until spring is really supposed to hit. So we could get some seriously cold temperatures and big snow still. If that happened after some of those birds come back, they could really be in a bad way. And it's it's the framework we're talking about. It's the mm -hmm. climate crisis framework. I mean, you're talking about a phenology that's been set. It's millions of years of evolution to set the phenology. If a warbler is in Venezuela, they can't look up and say, oh gosh, it's 60 degrees in Wisconsin. I'm going to get going. You know, mm -hmm. They're looking at where the stars are and where the sun is rising. And there's Zugan Ruha says, you know, it's going to be April before they take off from the coast of Venezuela to, to head up here. And, and by that time, what if the trees leaf out and expend all their energy producing buds and then it freezes and they die and they have to restart and the flowers and plants come out and the bugs hatch early. It just 
wrecks the whole process of this millions of years of developed evolution. Two years ago now, Steve, where the bluebird population just plummeted and we weren't seeing any bluebirds. And they attributed that to that bad storm in Texas, where right during migration, there was a huge temperature drop and a big ice storm that came through. And they believed that was that event that basically wiped out the bluebirds that year on migration. Fall spring phenomenon. We're talking about that, how, you know, you have more and more of these fall springs where the birds do move. Uh, we're talking about eagles, birds that are waterfowl, loons, eagles, they move as fast as ice out. And so if the ice keeps melting, they'll keep moving, no problem. A loon, though, uh, presses that too far and they get caught in the cold, they get ice on their wings, they have to land, they land on ice, they can't get up, all kinds of problems. And then we've seen that reverse migration. The birds are moving north in May, it gets cold, they turn around, they try to get out of there because there's no bugs to eat. So it can be catastrophic, yeah. Which birds typically leave Wisconsin in the winter and which stick around? Uh, and has that stayed the same over the years or has, um, you know, has kind of the, the way that the climate has changed affected that at all, Steve? We haven't, we haven't seen that kind of thing. We're seeing incremental slight shifts like birds have, you know, we've seen they're moving north uh, a degree of latitude in general or, you know, their winter ranges are farther north than they used to be. But we're not seeing like roadrunners in, uh, you know, vermilion flycatchers in Wisconsin, although we're seeing more invasive or uh, eruptive species with storms blowing up here. We're just not seeing this shift in bird populations yet. And the same thing goes through for when the seasons change. The same birds that go to the tropics are going to the tropics. The same birds that don't migrate, chickadees and jays and crows don't migrate. You know, those haven't changed. We haven't seen that kind of cataclysmic change yet. But if the forecasts are true, you know, and this climate becomes that of Kansas in 50 or 100 years, you will see different birds here. Audubon projects things like, you know, no more Baltimore Orioles, no more house wrens, the loons and eagles would be gone. Uh, things like that, rough grouse gone because the climate would not support the vegetation and habitat that they require. And that's, again, part of the formatting of this thing. It's not just that the birds are making this up. It's that they are dependent on habitat and the habitat is so severely stressed or will be stressed that the birds will react, and in a lot of cases, negatively to that. Are there birds that specifically migrate to Wisconsin and neighboring regions that you'll only find in the wintertime? Are there, or or are we only seeing birds that migrate out of the area? No, we, we have birds that come in, nothing specifically to Wisconsin. I don't think there's anything that wouldn't be in Minnesota or Michigan too, but we see birds that come from the boreal forest down in search of food. We see a lot of these raptor species, owls that come south for eruptive reasons. You know, maybe there's not enough food. Maybe there's a, a big, big bumper crop of young birds and they're looking for or to explore new food sources. But we don't have anything that, uh, you know, Michigan and Minnesota don't. And that's, again, that's been typical. Like Steve said, we haven't seen these huge shifts yet, although they are predicted. But we will see, you know, we have seen a few oddballs um, and, you know, Every the last several years, we see more and more robins that stick around in the winter. And, you know, if animals can find their needs, food, water, shelter, they will stick around. There's a place here at Beaver Creek Reserve where there's a natural spring and it's down in a low area where it's warmer. And pretty much any time in the winter, you can go down there and often find robins down there. But this year on the Christmas bird count, I couldn't believe I found a kingfisher. And, you know, but there was open water. It was warmer. There's not a lot of snow. And so there was a few other things that have been showing up 
on Christmas bird counts, um, you know, to, uh, maybe that bluebird had been sticking around through the winter. So to see a few of those oddities, uh, this is not a bird, but this still floors me on December 23rd this year. So the day before Christmas, I saw a freshly killed uh, garter snake on the road. Mm. Now there should not be a garter snake out on December 23rd. I couldn't believe it. You know, seeing those odd, odd little things because the weather is so warm and the, the ground's not frozen solid and there was no snow cover. Steve, have you noticed any birds or any, uh, you know, anything unusual this this winter that you haven't seen in, in recent years as far as species? No, uh, the summer, this last summer was an amazing year. We had things happen in Wisconsin. It was like a circus. We had birds for various reasons popping. I don't know if you're familiar with that, the spoonbill and the, the swallow-tailed kites and the limpkins and all these weird birds. It was it was almost dreamlike that we're getting all these weird birds pushed in from storms, pushed in from severe winds coming out of the Southwest, maybe uh, different ranges, like the limpkin is maybe increasing its range north. But winter has been quiet. I don't think that we've had eruptive finches. We haven't had the kind of crossbills, even uh, red poles. This is supposed to be a red pole winter, uh, every other winter, and we haven't had red poles. People keep saying, I had two people call me, one from Stillwater and another from Rice Lake, and say, my birds are gone. They're completely gone. You know, it's like Rachel Carson kind of thing. Uh, and they were really alarmed. And we talked about this at, at the beginning, but I, my answer was not the bird flu. It could be your feet. It could be a raptor. Yeah, yeah. But I think it's just the fact that there's no snow and the birds have disseminated millions of years. They've, they've learned how to find natural food sources. Ours are a benefit. If it's minus 30, a chickadee really needs that to get through the night, but they can forage for themselves. And so people are, are panicking, you know, no birds, no birds. And I said, just wait, just wait when it snows, you'll come back. And I hope I'm right. I hope it isn't the Rachel Carson kind of thing, but we're, again, we're talking about non-migrants. We're talking about chickadees and nuthatches and crows, not about those long distance migrants, which are really the birds that are being affected here uh, in the most part. You're listening to Steve Betchkel and Jeanette Kelly on Route 51. We're exploring the wild bird population during Wisconsin's winter months. I'm Shireen Seward. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51, I'm Shireen Seward. Steve Betchkel and Jeanette Kelly are with us today for a discussion on winter birding in Wisconsin. We touched a little bit on this just briefly in the last segment, but I have to wonder about the whole mechanism that birds go through to know when they're supposed to move, when they're supposed to go south, when they're supposed to come back. Steve, can you explain that in a little bit more detail? How does a bird know, hey, it's time for me to head back home to Wisconsin? Yeah, I use the word Zuganruha, it's a German word. It means migratory or nocturnal, uh, migratory restlessness. And so these birds have what, what amounts to an ancestral memory, uh, kind of a different intelligence than we do. If we had it, we have forgotten it, let's say that. But birds have built-in mechanisms that allow them to sense things. And, and we've looked at migration and all these things affect migration, uh, where the sun rises, where the North Star is, uh, magnetism, 
uh, weather, sound, geography, uh, tides. I mean, all these things birds use. We even found, I think in the last couple of years that there was a bird discovered that had a sensor for um, magnetism in its cornea, you know, that, that was using that to, to kind of help it navigate. So different birds have different mechanisms, uh, but they use all these many mechanisms to decide uh, based on many years of experience, when to get up and go. And it's funny, they know to get up and go. Uh, they learn the route um, by following their example of older birds and more experienced birds. And then they use that uh, on the return when they go south and they're young, they follow the veterans and they come back after they've learned it one time and have, uh, kind of master the route. Well, that's just amazing. I mean, to me that they that they know that they know what they're doing and it, and it's just this innate innate thing. Uh, Jeanette, let's talk about what happens to birds when temperatures drop. Do they have um, physical changes? Um, what goes on? One of my favorite things to talk about that I feel often isn't given the credit it quite deserves are feathers. Feathers, everyone knows birds have feathers. It's one sure. of the one of the unique characteristics that birds have that make them a different unique animal from all the other other animals that are out there in the world. But feathers are just these phenomenal structures that these animals have. And they are phenomenal in the way they are made, in the structure, in the patterns, in all the functions that they serve for the bird. And often people think, oh yeah, birds have feathers that helps them fly. But really, I mean, we could sit here and list probably 50 different functions that feathers serve for birds. And one of those functions is in keeping warm. And the feathers, uh, birds have feathers covering majority of their bodies, probably 90% of their bodies, depending on the birds. For some birds, it's 99% of their bodies. For instance, owls, when we when Steve was talking about the owls coming from the north, we think about snowy owls or great gray, gray owls. They're covered from the tops of their heads all the way down to the tips of the toes. The only part not covered is the very bottom of their feet. And birds like the tundra swan, the who are in the water in the cold water they have 20,000 feathers covering their body 20,000 wow. feathers so birds are are you know it's not just a few feathers on their body they're covered in these feathers and on just the wing alone of a bird there are over 20 different types of feathers so there is over, you know, anywhere from 100 to 200 different or, or individual feathers just on the wing, but there's 20 different types of feathers on the wing. So it's it's incredible the diversity of feathers and how each different type of feather has a function. Um, and so all those different feathers are help in keeping the bird warm and the birds can move those feathers. Almost all those feathers are attached to a tiny muscle on the bird and the birds can shift those feathers, they can raise them, they can lower them. 
And when it comes to keeping warm, uh, one, they are water repellent. So they can actually, if, if they get rained on, if they go into the water, if they get snowed on, those feathers act uh, as a raincoat and help to repel the water from them. And the way they help to keep those feathers water repellent is they preen their feathers with their beak or they kind of comb through their feathers and keep their feathers in good working order. They also have a gland on their backside called a, you ready for the Shireen? a uropigenal gland okay and that, gl <laughs> that <laughs> gland has oil in it and they dip their beak into that uropigenal gland and grab that oil and spread that oil across their feathers and that helps to keep them water repellent and so they have that water repellency on their feathers and then also when they uh, lift up those feathers and separate those feathers they have their own personal down coat we know that feathers are warm because we make down coats, we make down sleeping bags, we make down comforters. We know feathers are very, very warm. And so feathers alone help tremendously in keeping birds warm. Birds can shiver. Shivering is movement. It helps to move the muscles. It helps to keep them warm. Birds also have a unique form of blood circulation that when the blood flows uh, essentially to make it a very uh, simple form, when the blood flows down from the heart to their legs, the cool blood coming up their legs runs past that warm blood and is warmed when it goes into the heart. So it's not freezing cold blood going into the heart and shocking the heart. It helps to keep the blood warmer going throughout their system. So they have several techniques that they use. Um, to help keep them warm on cool nights. They also can slow down their, their heart rate and their breathing to help keep them, uh, to lower their energy needs throughout the evening. Mm, so interesting. It sounds so complex. Yeah. I, I was trying to spell Europigial and uh, I, I didn't get it right. Also, I want to say, uh, Jeanette knows that there are 20,000 feathers on a bird because she actually counted them. <laughs> it was before I had kids and when I was really bored one day. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you two cracked me up. Well, <laughs> we'll talk a little bit about food later, but I but I do want to talk about how to create a, a bird-friendly habitat in our backyards and in our communities. So let's start with the backyard. What kinds of things do I need if I really want to attract um birds to my backyard and have, have this haven of, of wonderful wildlife to look at? Well, we say there are four basics to attracting birds, to landscaping for birds. You want, one, you need cover. The other needs you need structure for nesting, and the other needs you need food. And then I would add water in there. But we're talking about vegetation usually. And so if you're planting, you want to put in trees that offer structure that they can build a nest in, they, they can seek refuge in and protection in and that they can eat. And so from the ground up, those things are all important. What you plant in your yard should provide those things for birds. And if you do that and you plant native, they're also good for beneficial insects, which are good for birds and actually serve as a food source. Well, that's the start of it. Those four things are basic. Okay. Well, we talk Go ahead. Some great resources for finding some of those things. UW Extension has some great information on native planting and setting up a good wildlife habitat in your backyard. Wild Birds Unlimited has good resources on that. Finding native plants is just so, so important. Um, 
you know, don't create what I call as a um, ecological desert. Mm -hmm. Do not create an ecological desert. Don't just put out a mowed lawn. Uh, Steve, tell us how how many plants do you have and how many bird species have you seen in your backyard that you live in Eau Claire? I probably told this story so many times. That's the problem here, right? That you, you know it by heart. I bought the house in 93 and we bought it a traditional old ethnic landscape. It was uh, a small yard, but it was grass from the house to the boulevard. Uh, Kentucky bluegrass, poa grass, right? And I counted the plants because I could do it. It was 13 different kinds of plants. There was yew bushes and red cedar and there was a spruce tree and some spirea and there were some phlox plants over here. And I let it go. I haven't put any pesticides or herbicides in. And I let a lot of plants go. And then I kept bringing plants in, native plants over the years. And on my last count, we had over 300 species of plants in my tiny little yard because I naturalized it and didn't spray things too. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm, I'm glad you brought up spraying. Um, we see a lot of people who are spraying their lawns for, uh, for mosquito protection. Uh, do you have any sense of how that affects birds or, yeah, uh, talk about that a little bit. I just saw the the look on your face, Steve, which tells me there there's uh, there's something to this. Well, again, it's the old ethic versus the new ethic. I mean, my dad saw one dandelion in the yard, and he would get out the the herbicide and spray it or dig it out, and it was you know pristine green right to the edges, right? And we know now that a lot of these plants are providing habitat for beneficial insects, and so every time you spray, you're killing things, even. Even the stuff that you put in your plants um, and and potted plants kills insects and uh, microorganisms in the soil that are beneficial for the soil. They can't survive in that stuff. And so every time we spray, not only is that killing beneficial insects, but it's probably a toxin that's not good for people and it's getting washed into rivers. And so that is an unsustainable practice, if if you're asking me and other uh, ecologists. I mean, you can't keep spraying things to death. Now, mosquitoes, too. I mean, haven't we learned the lesson from DDT? Yeah, we sprayed for DDT. If you look at all, this is amazing, Shireen. If you look at old ads, you will see pictures of people spraying DDT on their streets and at beaches while kids are playing. Yeah. We used to do that. We used to do that. And so that says to me all the time, you know, now we look at what what the neonicotinoids and glyphosate and, and what we're doing with those. We have no sense of the repercussion of all these toxins that we put in. I'll tell you, just a side story here. They did a study with neonicotinoids, and they found that in wheat fields in Manitoba, if you had a sparrow eat three seeds, three wheat seeds that were coated with these neonics, the the sparrow was incapacitated. It was basically defenseless, and it would die if it ate any more. And so so we're putting those same seeds in bread, which humans eat, right? It doesn't make any sense at all. And Rachel Carson is rolling over in her grave. And think about when we use these chemicals, you know, you know, it's one of those things that I think we be, we just become so diso- dissociated from the things that we do and the lack of connectedness about how they uh, affect not only the our surroundings, but then thinking back to how they affect us. You know, when you do spray chemicals in your your yard and your neighborhood, uh, I think about like we live we live in the country. We have a well. If we put chemicals on our grass they likely could seep in through the soil and go into our well, which Mm -hmm. then means my children and my husband and I are drinking those chemicals. And then I think about my children laying in the yard and my dog laying in the grass, and they are then getting those chemicals on them. Um, I have 
numerous times talked with people who talk about how their bluebirds are no longer in their yard. Well, oh, and my fruit trees, you know, I had to spray my fruit trees for all the insects. Well, you know, those insects, those bluebirds were eating, and now that you've sprayed them, the insects aren't there, or the bluebirds ate them. Uh, so chemical usage is huge. And the, the one that I like to talk about a lot with people that, especially in the fall, that we don't think about a lot are rodenticides. I, I'm a big pusher to get rid of rodenticides. Um, snap traps, all about them. You can use those snap traps all you want. But rodenticides, what happens is when you use rodenticides, it doesn't kill those rodents right away. Those rodents go outside and they become weak and imperiled. And then a raptor sees them as an easy prey and they go and eat them. And then it's that whole bioaccumulation up the food chain. And then that predator is eventually killed by the rodenticide. So uh, trying to eliminate those and get rid of those those chemicals out of your yard is a really, really good thing to do. And what about, we haven't even talked about lead. I mean, you know, we know that Oof. in Wisconsin, you can still use lead shot and lead sinkers. And why stubbornly are sportsmen still using those when we know they're toxic? It's a heavy metal. It's bad for animals. It's bad for people. Why in Wisconsin are we still using lead in shot and sinkers? Lot to think about for sure. What do you think communities could do to promote uh, a more bird-friendly environment, Steve? Be like Madison. I think we could be like Madison. They just passed an ordinance uh, recently in the last couple of years that requires all new construction to be bird safe. All the glass, all the metal must be treated. It can't be super reflective to draw birds into collisions because we know that birds think they can pass through these big windows and they they push their beak back into their brain, cranium, and then they die of brain trauma. And so uh, what communities have to do, and we're, doing, we're talking about this in Eau Claire, is they have to look at a different ethic. They have to look at a different way of living that is not about themselves and a few of their pets. We have to start thinking that what we do with trees affects birds and bugs. We have to understand that how we build and construct things uh, lures birds to their death. And there are less and less birds all the time. And so I always say there are these four parts of bird-friendly design. We have to look at those toxins. We have to look about how we landscape and how we do that with native things. We have to build our buildings differently and we have to control free roaming cats because they and building structure collisions, I should say, are two of the biggest problems facing wild birds today. Let's, let's circle back to our own yards and what we can do in our own yards. And uh, one thing you brought up was bird baths. And uh, is is a, a bird bath really, um, really necessary? And what about the heated bird baths? What's the best thing to do, Jeanette? Yeah, water is key. Water is uh, all living things need water. Plants need water, humans need water, all animals need water. So water is definitely a key thing, especially if you want birds in your yard. It really helps to draw them in. You can go as simple as the traditional bird bath that all of us grew up with, up to spending thousands and thousands of dollars on a very fancy moving um, bird river in your backyard. And the one benefit I will say is moving water, both the visual movement and the sound of moving water is a huge attractant to birds. But you can do that very simply or you can do it very elaborately. So there are a couple items. There is what's called misters, which spray a fine mist of water into the air. And there's also drippers, which you can add both of those to your bird bath. 
And uh, the misters are actually really fun because hummingbirds do tend to like them and they will bathe through them. And those are very easy things, again, that add both movement and sound, which will help attract birds. And so getting a bird bath, you know, just a straight up bird bath, if you want adding the Mr. Dripper, you can buy for, you know, if you have the means to spend a couple hundred dollars, you can get small moving waterfalls to put in your backyard. The key thing with water in your yard is to keep it clean. Make sure to keep it clean, keep it clean from bird feces, keep it clean from seeds, keep it clean from algae. Also, if bird baths can get very deep, unnecessarily deep, honestly, throw, just pick up a rock, put a rock in the middle so the birds are a, a, a log or something, a brick, just so birds can perch in the middle. That also gives them more area to come from uh, or to uh, perch on and to drink from. But birds do need water to drink. You'll notice that they are not like mammals. They can't just sit there with their head in the water and glug, glug, glug water. They will take a sip and they'll tilt their heads back to get the water to go down their throat. The one exception to that is the rock dove or the commonly known Known pigeon, they actually can hold their heads down and drink more similar to the way mammals can. In the winter months when it is freezing, yeah, get a get a heated bird bath. You can either buy a heated bird bath, they're just a plastic, typical looking bird bath. They are excellent, or you can buy a heater to go inside your bird bath. Uh, um, similar to what they use in animal troughs on, on farms and things. Can't put that in your feeder to keep it open during the wintertime. Birds still need water during the winter months. They are a great thing to have in your backyard. Jeanette Kelly and Steve Betchkel are our guests today on Route 51. We're continuing our discussion on the wild birds of Wisconsin's winters. Stay with us for feeding tips and a whole lot more. Whether you're a beginner or a longtime birding enthusiast, I'm Shereen Seawart. This is Route 51 on Wisconsin Public Radio. Back on Route 51, I'm Shereen Seward. Our guests today are Steve Betchkel and Jeanette Kelly, professional ornithologists and experts on bird migration, talking all about the winter birds of Wisconsin. Let's talk food. Sure. If you want to bring in bird seed that you want to purchase and add to your backyard, I always say black oil sunflower is the best food that you can offer. Then when they have run studies on bird seed to see what kind of birds eat, what black oil sunflower is the number one seed liked by the largest majority of birds. So if you're gonna go simple and don't wanna mess around, buy black oil sunflower. You can add other types of seed for diversity. The key with seeds is make sure you know what you're buying. So stay away from things like wheat seed, red millet, grass seed, wheat germ, things like that are literally junk, Shereen. They're just junk seed. They are filler that no birds are going to eat and they're a waste of your money. You want to look for things like black oil sunflower seed, striped sunflower seed, cracked corn, white millet, 
uh, peanuts. Those are all things that birds love. Suet is a great thing to feed, especially in the winter. Again, high fat, high protein. In the winter months, peanuts and suet are both excellent things to feed to really provide that, that high protein, high fat for birds. Uh, when people uh, look at seed, they, they tend to like the thistle, uh, the Niger seed. And I think Niger is problematic. Not only is it uh, hard to keep fresh because it gets wet, it gets packed down, but it's not as popular. And then when it drops to the ground, usually it's fertile and it just creates these thistles in your yard. So I'm not a fan of that. And so uh, I, I love suet and black sunflower and what, how can you go wrong with those, you know? And so I, what I what we see in terms of feeding, and I want to address this, is, is we're still talking bird flu here. And bird flu issues are, and people always ask us, they say, well, you know, I, I'm a feeder. And, and, and then they talk about how they're feeding in July. And I say, well, you don't need to feed in July, remember, because birds eat things naturally. And so if you stop feeding in April and you start feeding in November, you don't have to deal with any diseases. You don't have to deal with salmonella as frequently. You don't have to worry about the mold and the disease, the heat, uh, the spreading of bird flu is more prevalent if it's hot and, and the birds are together clustered and eating around and there's poop on the ground. So this is a very complicated issue, but basically you can feed them anything you desire. And, and, the, and people love to feed, there'll be feeders with peanuts in the shell that they'll put in there. They, they, you know, people just get a kick out of that. And the reason that I say feed them and feed them anything you want is because people are bonding with birds. And that's what I think is so great about this. Birds really don't need it, but people need it. And I think people becoming conservationists and bird lovers is more important to me than whether the birds are eating peanuts or black sunflower seed in June. You know, it, it's not important. In July, again, I'll say on a, on a night when it's minus 30, a chickadee needs the caloric pack of black sunflower seed. It might keep it alive at night, keep it from dropping, toppling over into the snowbank. But you know what you feed is a matter of what you can afford, because obviously some people go through fifty pounds of black sunflower seed in a week at their feeders, and mm -hmm. and that's uh, that's costly. But it's it's a it's a sport for people to fall in love with birds, and that's why I believe it's so important in America. And I want to I want to throw this stat out there. People are always amazed at this in Wausau. You didn't have cardinals in 1975. There were no cardinals in Wausau. And people just said, what? You know, they, if you wanted to see a cardinal, you had to go down to the Illinois state line. Really? Seven, yeah. And feeders are what brought them forward. And, and that's true of some other birds, like red-bellied woodpeckers are doing very well because we feed them. And their feeding stations propel them northward, probably at the expense of uh, red-headed woodpeckers. But no cardinals in Wausau in, in 1970. And, and I wonder if people can remember that far back. The one thing to be careful of with feeding the birds, people who are, you know, I'll see people sometimes because like peanuts can be very expensive. And if you buy just mixed nuts at, because they're cheaper, remember mixed nuts are often fried with, you know, oil, hydrogenated oil and lots of salt. That's not necessarily good for the birds or dried cranberries can sometimes be dried with, um, corn syrup or lots of sugar. So that's the one thing you want to watch out for is if you're, you know, if you're feeding a little bit fine, but you don't necessarily want to feed large quantities of human food that maybe has been prepared with things that aren't necessarily the best for wild animals. I know that each species has its own kind of preference as to where they like to feed, the feeding location. So is it best in winter to put seed in a feeder or right on the ground or does it, does it matter? 
Well, like you said, each different species has a preference. So, and now you're talking to a girl here who worked at a Wild Birds Unlimited for a long time and was a backyard bird feeding specialist. So, uh, so yeah, the, it depends on the type of bird. Certain birds do prefer to feed on the ground, like the dark-eyed juncos or the slate-colored juncos that we have here in the wintertime. Morning doves, they do prefer to eat on the ground and they love eating things like white millet on the ground. Larger birds like the cardinals Steve mentioned, they do prefer to eat from feeders and they like wider perches like a hopper feeder with a larger perching area and they will love to eat black oil, sunflower, safflower out of there. The finches, the gold finches, if we are lucky enough to get the red poles or siskins, they're going to want to eat sunflower chips or sometimes the thistle out of tube feeders. The woodpeckers are going to be able to hang from the suet feeders. The nuthatches, they, they're so acrobatic, they can go anywhere and get anything. So the different species are more comfortable on different styles of feeders. The problem with the ground feeding these days with bird flu is that that's where the bird uh, defecate and it goes to the ground. If they're sitting at a feeder, they drop uh, their feces to the ground. And that's been part of the problem with the spread of bird flu. They spread it through saliva, contact, feathered, uh, and, and feces. And so if at a feeder, you have a messy feeder, that's problematic because the spread of bird flu and other diseases can be prevalent there. And so if you do spread seed to the ground, you should be careful to clean it up. You should rake up things. You should make sure that there isn't that kind of disease lingering underneath your feeder. Uh, earlier, Steve, you mentioned when you were young that you just had this thirst to uh, to identify the birds. That you know, it wasn't just enough to say that's a blackbird or whatever. You and you went and got books. Now, of course, we have lots of apps and we have lots of we have online things that we can we can uh, we can use. Do you have any suggestions for finding apps that can help us identify a bird by either the way it looks, by taking a picture or by its song? I want to rephrase that. I still feel young. No disrespect intended. <laughs> There's this rage right now. Merlin is the rage. I, I went out there last year. And I don't know how many dozens of people came up to me and, and, and showed me their Merlin device. We're talking about how Merlin works. And and, and what it is, it's so cool. It's the little machine, which, too, if you know the side story, has been evolving for two decades or more, maybe even 25 years. But you just pop your phone on and it starts identifying the birds. And people just love it because they're so intimidated by birdsong, right? And so even more revolutionary than the guide itself lately in, in our age now is the Merlin app. And people just are liberated by this fact that they can turn on a device. And it's funny because some people kind of cheat, right? They, they turn it on and they identify what's out there. And then they say, oh, I got it. Instead of using the good old ethic of looking up the, the, the field marks and the traits and learning the song and identifying it through hard work, they let Merlin do the work. But we find that Merlin isn't perfect. And so Merlin, Merlin makes mistakes both identifying birds that aren't there and misidentifying birds that are there. It's not perfected yet, but boy, it sure is a helpful device and people are just turned on by it and excited. about it. Jeanette, what do you recommend for people who are trying to learn more about which birds are in their area? I, I agree with Steve. I have to admit, I tried and true. I will always carry my field guide with me. I love my field guide. I, I can't ever imagine putting that down. And when the Merlin app came out, uh, many people said to me, oh, is it going to replace you? <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> it's going to replace me. 
Um, which I don't think, just like what Steve said, I mean, it, it's not perfect. It, it, I don't think that you could ever replace a person, but uh, it is, I, I didn't pay any attention to it for the first couple of years, but a few years ago, I took a trip down to Florida with a friend and we used it down there, both the audio identification and the photo ID. I'm not good with shorebirds and I could not believe how good it was. Mm -hmm. And it was amazing. And even for me to wait a minute, I think I heard this. I'm, you know, I think it was this. And then I use it to double check myself. Or sometimes, um, you know, I'll be listening for something. I'm like, oh, I didn't even hear that in this area. And then I'll listen for that. And oh, yeah, sure enough, there's that bird. So it really was a good, it's a good educational tool for me to help me learn birds I'm not that familiar with. Um, so the Merlin app is, it's impressive. It's very impressive. I have not really gotten into or loved some of the other apps. I I personally have not found the Merlin app as useful for, for identifying birds through the, um, you know, choose the size, choose the color. That function has not worked well for me. I know I have talked to other people that say it's fantastic. For me, it has not worked well. And I don't know if that's because I am the traditionalist or old school or whatever you want to call it with my field guide that I, my brain is not working that same way. But it, the Merlin app is, it's impressive, but you're still always going to find my field guide with me. Okay. Steve, where are some of the best spots to uh, go birding in the winter? Um, where, where are some of your favorite places to go and explore and see everything that you can possibly see? Wherever water is open whether you're talking okay. about Wisconsin River, the Mississippi, Lake Michigan, anywhere water is open right now, there's going to be waterfall. Uh, our phonology in Wisconsin is very simplistic, right? We have a land bird migration that starts early, but that's blackbirds and horned larks and some cranes and geese. That's slow. That won't happen for a while because those birds have a long way to come. But the water birds, as I mentioned before, come as fast as they can when the water opens up. So if there is open water, they'll only go as far south as they need to, and that's where they're lingering. So if you go to the harbors on Lake Michigan or find an open river, you might find some swans and a lot of waterfowl and then the first loons coming through and, of course, eagles. So the concentrations are pretty thick right now. A little bit later, in another month, a great variety of geese will come through the state, and you'll find things like cackling geese and snow geese and Ross's goose and white-fronted geese in addition to, to Canada geese. And that's the next step, but there's still waterfowl. See, they're, they're, that's the early part. And right now in this part of the year, by the way, spring starts officially in Wisconsin by nature's calendar in just two weeks at the end of February. And that's because of the big shift in the Earth-Sun geometry, birds that are very near in Illinois and Iowa that have just gone very, very uh, nearly south, our, our, our near distant migrants have, have turned around and started to come back to every claim their territories. Those are the first ones to get back and they begin in late February and early March. Uh, a little early this year, already red-winged blackbirds down south in the state and some cranes and that bluebird that Jeanette mentioned. So that's a little scary, like she said too, I agree. So in the next few weeks, is that when we're going to really start seeing a few more species coming or and or is it going to be longer than that? You know, the diversity doesn't pick up until um, mid-March, and then it really starts to crescendo, of course, as we get towards May. So it's slower, but you can see a lot of good shorebird species in mid-March, and then the hawks come next, 
and then the uh, migrants from the Gulf, which is the end of April, and then all the neotrops, which is in May. Jeanette, I wanted to ask you about the bird school that's coming up. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so at Beaver Creek Reserve, from May 2nd to May 4th, so uh, three, three over three days, Steve and I will be hosting bird school. And I one of these days, I got to look it up. I'm trying to figure out. I think this may be our eighth year, seventh, eighth year. We have been hosting this bird school where we are focusing our attention towards beginning birders, folks that are interested in becoming better birders, people who have never birded before, people who just want to learn what birding is about. Maybe you've never held a pair of binoculars before. Maybe you have binoculars, but don't even know how to use them. Uh, People who are just interested in becoming birders. And in this, you know, we start on Thursday evening, we go all day Friday, and we go Saturday until around noon or one one o'clock and we talk about birds we talk about how to identify birds we go through some tricks of the trade we go through some basics of of identification both by sight by sound we talk about migration and ecology and conservation we go on some birding field trips we get out at 6 a.m both friday and saturday morning and go out birding with some of the local birders in the area. We do a bird banding demonstration. We get up uh, and get moving and do some different bird identification activities. We have Steve and I both speak. We have other speakers that come in and it's just a really fantastic, fun program. Um, I know it's a lot of fun because Steve, out of the goodness of his own heart, has I mean, I do it as part of my job. Steve's been volunteering from the start of the of bird school and he keeps coming back every year and wanting to be part of it. And we have people come from all across the state, from Minnesota. In fact, I have some folks that are going to join us, I think for the third time, because they just keep learning more and more and finding more benefit to keep coming back and keep increasing their knowledge and skills. And so it's just been a really neat program and uh, registration is open now for it. Just go to beavercreekreserve.org. Wonderful. I want to thank you both for coming in and uh, talking with me today. This has been a great conversation. I've really enjoyed it. This is Route 51. I'm Shereen Seward. Once more, a sincere thanks to our guests, Steve Betchkel and Jeanette Kelly. Joy Ratchkramer and Ezra Wall assisted in producing this program. Thanks to John Altenberg for the Route 51 theme. You can hear the archive of today's program and our previous programs at WPR.org slash Route 51. Next week, we'll be back with another fascinating discussion, and we hope you'll join in. This is Wisconsin Public Radio.